Dr. Simon Eccles is the Chief Clinical Information Officer for Health and Care and Deputy CEO of NHSX. Amongst many responsibilities, he's accountable for delivery of the Personal Health and Care 2020 programme and the central expenditure for the NHS's IT. Whilst doing all of this, he also practices one day a week as a consultant in emergency medicine. He's funny, he's opinionated, he has a strong vision, and he gives wonderful insight into what it's like to be a doctor policymaker, what he's learnt along the way, electronic health records, his views on blockchain, and what he took away from his time at the SAID Business School at the University of Oxford. I hope you enjoy. Could you tell me a little bit about your story? So maybe start from the beginning and how you got to where you are today. Uh, right. Uh, I blame my parents. Um, so um, I'm Simon Eccles. I'm the, the National Chief Clinical Information Officer for Health and Care, uh, a role that's based in NHSX, uh, but covers NHS England, the Arms Length Bodies and the Department of Health and Social Care. I'm also the Deputy Chief Exec at NHSX. Uh, the NHS is sort of a digital innovation arm. And occasionally I'm still an A&E consultant at uh, St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, how did I get there? Uh, I, I, I did, did, did the usual uh, medical school stuff. And I was, it, it starts, and it's, it's probably worth it for a second. It started as a house officer. I was asked to consent um, parents of children with cleft lip and palate for surgery. And I'd, I'd never seen a cleft lip and palate operation, uh, let alone knew what the complications were. And I asked and got told, uh, sort of, um, just just do it. Um, and I, I refused, which was slightly brave. And I ended up in front of our, our dean, um, who said, actually, I was, that was probably fair enough. And I ought to at least know what the operation consisted of before consenting parents. Um, and as you probably know, you now don't consent unless you're uh, competent to undertake the, the, the procedure. But that got me involved in medical politics. And for medical politics, it got me involved in trying to, in to, trying to make stuff better. Um, unwind the clock forward a, a, a while and I was a, a senior registrar and the opportunity to get involved in digital work came clear and and it occurred to me that if we could do um, what was then IT in healthcare better we could join records up for example so medications um, became known and allergies became known we would make care safer. We would make uh, docs and nurses' lives easier. Uh, and we would involve uh, patients um, in their own care better. And I thought that was phenomenally worthwhile. And slightly naively, I thought it wouldn't take terribly long to do. And uh, it's now about 14 years later. Um, I have I've gone out of this and come back into it. And I'm still trying to do more or less the same thing. So I thought it would be straightforward when I first started. Can you help explain something to me? So what do you think the biggest misconception people have from looking through that clinical lens to looking at policymakers and thinking, oh, everything moves very slowly? Um, you know, this change isn't happening fast enough. From your perspective, what do you think the biggest misconception is that when you, what you realise when you enter one of these positions? Ooh, um, I think there are, there, there are two. Um, you said you asked for one, so it's um, generous in the answer. As, uh, at, at a senior level in an organisation, uh, staff will be familiar with how long it takes to make change. At a junior level, it's seen, now this is this is it, it, it seems easier, and the reason it seems easier is you can make a change. Then you leave six month, one year rotation. And what you don't see after you've gone is that that idea probably peters out. So something that sticks uh, um, and becomes a, a complete 
change in the way work is delivered um, is, is really hard, even within a single NHS organisation. Doing that across uh, 200 if we're doing acutes, uh, 7,000 if we're doing uh, general practice or, um, is, is extremely challenging. And what you need is, is a compelling reason for change. Um, recently, with coronavirus, we had an absolutely compelling reason to change, um, to move from face-to-face -face consultations by default to moving to uh, telemedicine online um, or, or um, telephone consultations by default. And the NHS did it. Okay, I mean, it, it just did it. We put, we put virtual consultation into virtually every outpatient's um, and primary care, and that change was was wholesale and absolutely uh, transformational. What's going to be interesting as coronavirus eases as a pressure, certainly next year, even if, if not during this winter, how do we maintain the good things about that change? Uh, I'm not getting in some battle about whether every consultation should be um, remote. No, they shouldn't all be remote, but but more probably can. And that should, by and large, rest with, with a combination uh, of the doc and the citizen making a, a, a decision between each other about what suits that consultation best. So that's the first. It's, it's harder than you think without a compelling reason for change. The second misconception is the scale of the NHS. It's huge. We burn through whatever it is, £140 billion um, pounds a year, um, uh, uh, amounting to whatever it is, 11, 9, I think, or 8.5% of GDP. As a consequence, sums of money that seem really large just can disappear into the NHS. We're spending fifty million pounds. You go, wow, fifty million quid. You know, right, that that's two hundred fifty thousand pounds per acute hospital. And if that's over a year, uh, an, an acute hospital, if you if you give them two hundred fifty thousand pounds with a turnover of of three hundred million, four hundred million, you know, it, it's not going to make a phenomenal difference. And, and so when we're looking at changes like implementing electronic patient record systems, which is of the order 30 million for, for, for uh, small organisations, ranging up to, I think, about 100 million for, for big organisations, times 200, ends up at, at sums of money that even, even Treasury um, go really pale and weak at the knees when you, when you start talking about those sums. So... It is, it is not as surprising as it might be that this stuff takes time, is complex and costs more money than, than, than people expect. And that's, that does make me sound defensive, but live with that. In your view or in the model you have in your head, is it helpful to think of the NHS as a singular one big entity or do you think of it as many, many different um, things that just come under this one brand? Uh, oh God! You're into some heavily existential questions about that. The, the whole, the whole sheet. That's brilliant. Absolutely fine. Um, and, and the answer is both. And the answer is both. I, I think we, I think we do too much um, one size fits all um, for, for for some things that are are whether the actual change is inevitably delivered locally. So a change in the way we deliver care is going to finally end up with a clinician, Dalton AHP, and a patient having a, a different interpersonal relationship, whether that's done remotely or whether that's because they've both seen the same set of blood results or um, a co-produced care plan or whatever whatever that change is going to be. So right down there, it's, it's local. Therefore, uh, a central edict isn't necessarily going to influence the millions of individual patient uh, interactions. At the same time, 
we are one NHS. And so almost every patient I've ever spoken to about this can't quite understand why the record of their past operations, their current medications, their previous illnesses isn't known to any point of contact in the NHS they have. Um, be that the, the you know the ambulance uh, staff turning up at, at their door or the A&E department or a, an out-of-hours GP. Um, why haven't they got our records? It's all part of the NHS. So that there's some stuff we really ought to do better nationally about setting standards and, and, and ensuring availability. But when it comes to transformation and change, the unit of currency is as local as it gets. Can we talk a little bit about electronic health records? And maybe you could expand a bit on what the current situation is and where the problems are and where the solution is. And to build on that bit, is the solution something that's going to happen publicly through NHSX and the NHS? Or is it something that you see private coming into and tackling? Okay, um, let, let's come back to the private public piece in, in a moment, if we may, because that's sort of a whole, whole, whole different ballgame. But electronic records are, um, are a, a, a must. We were one of the first nations um, to fully digitise elements of the records. So all primary care records, all GP records are digital across the NHS. I, I think technically maybe one or two practices still on paper uh, just for fun, but everyone else is, is, is digital. We were one of the first to have um, fully digital imaging across the whole country and we uh, most pathology is processed digitally even though some is still ordered on, on paper extraordinarily um, so we, we've, we've come a long way with this all the national systems are now in place in, in, in every organization uh, and our data is collected um, by and large digitally but if you're working in a hospital that's either doesn't really have an EPR system and there are a few or that have lots of individual bits of systems that really don't talk to each other, and you've got a post-it note stuck on the back of your ID badge with 12 different usernames and passwords on it, each of which goes out of date with sort of completely irregular intervals, and um, you're randomly trying to remember them. It, it doesn't feel like you've got a coordinated system. And yet we've got some of the, the best digital hospitals in the world, uh, in, in the UK, and I would in, include... Um, Cambridge and West Suffolk and some others in, in, in that mix who are at the, the highest level of digitization. So our, our challenge is how do we increase the general expectation here for, for digital records uh, so that it is sort of unacceptable from a safety perspective and from an efficiency perspective if you're running a hospital uh, to say that your records are anything other than, than, than digital and how do we help Hospitals get to that point because my wishing it to be true doesn't make it happen. But it, sh it should be no more acceptable for, for a, a junior doctor to be writing on blood bottles by hand and hoping they've spelled the name right and got the, you know, written the date of birth correctly than it is to have the roof of an operating theatre leaking. Um, that the, their safety concerns, they shouldn't, they shouldn't happen. You then asked how are we going to make it happen? Um, yeah, uh, so National Programme for IT, we, we spend a lot of money um, you know, see it from space, some of money trying to make this happen. Uh, and it, 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 it didn't work as successfully as it might have done. Um, so we need to, to move to a situation in which EPRs are uh, electronic patient records and uh, coordinated electronic patient records 
are expected in every organisation delivering care, and that includes secondary care organisations, and that we've got a funding model that reflects the complexity and the need to bring those in and to train uh, staff in how to use them. Um, and we've seen the best uh, um, in, in, in some organisations and we've got others who are still on, on paper. The second challenge, though, is it's all very well everybody being in their, in their digital island, but how do we join all of those together? So um, uh, as a, a nurse or doc receiving someone into A&E or onto a ward um, or as a GP whose patient's just been discharged, how do I absorb the right information from their previous care and make that part of what I'm doing now? Um, and I'm, I want to go further than um, many other organised uh, wor- worldwide. Many others have gone. So there, there are sort of um, t- two models that are live on this at the moment. Um, there's the US model, probably best exemplified by Boston as a, as a group, universal record. But it's a view, a passive view of the others. You create your own record. You can see other people. And you can cut and paste from theirs. So the record slowly accumulates volume as people cut and add and then add their own bit and then grab all of that and then add the next bit. And it gets it gets pretty huge. Or you've got the the Hong Kong model would probably be the example of the, 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 the Hong Kong record system, um, which is a single record system nationally across the island uh, and everybody's health records are on it and every point of care can see it. Um, we're going to go for neither of those um, because we've got independent organisations. We've got the GPs on their, on their record systems, mental health on its record systems, community care on its record systems, and the hospitals on different systems. And I, I don't think one system for the NHS is the right idea. I've worked with, um, with single vendors um, for solutions in the past. And if anything goes wrong, it goes wrong for everybody at the same time. And that's, that's really bad. You know, you get an outage. What, the NHS goes offline for a day. I mean, you know, this is this is it's not good. And if people don't like it, they've got no choice. So I, I think it's actually a good idea that there are different systems out there that some are thought to be better than others, and we need to get much better at listening to the users. So the vast majority of keystrokes made by nursing colleagues, and, and second to that would be junior doctors, as those users going, these are good, and this is why. This is this is rubbish, and this is why. Um, and the, the developers need to hear that feedback. What they tend to get is feedback from the IT departments uh, and, and the informatics professionals, not necessarily from the front line. Um, so that's that's one element of it. The, the other is aiming for a concept of the single source of truth. Um, so this is you know, sort of how modern internet is, is structured. But if we take two examples of this, one is uh, diagnostic test results, and the other would be medications. So if you've, you've come into a hospital and, and I want to know your, your last full blood count, I don't want a copy of your full blood count to be sent to me. I want sight of the single source of truth of your full blood count. And if somebody realised that, that there's an error with that, the analyzer was wrong, the numbers were wrong, the bottle was mislabeled, whatever it may be, I don't want to have an out-of-date copy of that. I, I want to know what was real at that time. And if we take medications, at any given moment, a, a citizen has one medication list, and that may include medications from their GP. It may include medications from their specialist, um, 
Many patients have depot injections once a month that often get forgotten when doing medication lists because they sort of don't occur to people. We need that full list. Um, and if we're going to go further than that, and I hope we will, I want to know the indication of those medications. What's the start indication for them? And then what's the stop indication? You know, and that, that, that antibiotics or, or, or analgesics come with relatively clear stop indications. After the, the pain's gone away or the condition's got better, these stop. Um, some, like antiepileptics, if they're fit-free for six months, fit-free for a year, then we'll look at stopping it or, or, or tearing it down. Antidepressants, um, you know, that the, the, they may be weaned or changed, but again, with patient consent and with those indications made clear. Others have regular changing dosage, uh, dependent on blood test results. And again, that becomes much clearer to a clinician who hasn't met that patient before, and indeed to the patient themselves, why the dose changes, what the things are we're looking for, how often those ought to be measured. So we can get a much richer picture about medicines than a single list. I also want to know what medicines have been tried in the past and why they were discontinued uh, for a given individual. Um, and we see that in my field of emergency care, where someone comes in on a bunch of painkillers and say their pain's still ongoing and it's not working. Oh, um, gosh, you, you know, everyone else has been treating you with complete idiots. What I need to do is to change this medicine to, to a you know, different uh, non-steroidal and everything will be better. And the patient goes back to the GP because, oh, for God's sake, that's the one we tried six months ago. If you don't remember, it, you know, it gave you the dreadful uh, rise in your, you know, a drop off in your kidney function bloody A&E, and, and cross it off again. We, If we're sharing all of that information, we will provide much better care uh, to patients. So EPRs need to, to need to be everywhere, and some aspects of the information they hold need to be common to all providers. Um, that, that, I think, will get us much closer to a real value and safety case. I don't know if you've heard much, well, I obviously you would have heard of it, but one interesting use I've seen of blockchain is in electronic healthcare records. And I was curious about your views of that, because it sounds like it might help with some of the issues you were talking about. Blockchain. Mm. Um, I don't want to diss an entire uh, industry based on, on cryptocurrency and, and, and possibly money laundering. But um, blockchain blockchain's one of those technologies for which promises keep being made, some of which sound extremely compelling. Um, so if we take medication, the ability to use the blockchain to verify uh, a medicine's veracity as containing the active ingredients and not being fraudulent from the point of manufacturer through each point of wholesale, resale, uh, to to um, pharmacy, be that retail pharmacy or, or hospital pharmacy, to uh, ward or bedside to, to use is is compelling, and I've I've heard others around um, identity verification that the blockchain may be part of the answer. But there isn't a use in practice, and it's been around for a long time. It, I, I think that the the, the the sort of hype curve has slightly disappeared for, for that one now. Um, and with a bit of luck, as it calms down, we'll be able to see where the real use cases are. Um, but but I'm, uh, I've seen it in, in, in retail and in, in product tracking, um, but I'm not convinced it's got as widespread uses as others seem to, 
to make out. It's interesting you mentioned the hype curve and obviously things like AI, machine learning, NLP, blockchain, these are all things that are very sexy at the moment. What are what are the things in your field that you see that maybe the dark horses that don't get a lot of attention and you think, wow, that's interesting. Some more people should work on that. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I'm, I'm not trying to come up with ones that to an extent you haven't already mentioned, but there are some that I'm surprised aren't making greater inroads. Um, so natural language processing is is, is the biggest. Um, I'm I'm uh, old enough to be almost pathetically analog. Um, yeah, e- even as I talk to you, I've got a, a, a pen and paper nearby. Um, so when it comes to creating large volumes of of uh, words on a page, I'm I'm not a touch typist. I, it drives me nuts. So I dictate it all into into um, uh, NLP program that works extremely fast and indeed has, has learned my voice and, and does it very, very well for me. There's an A&E department uh, in, the, in the Northeast that have uh, made that technology available uh, to their staff who can record notes more than twice as fast, as I understand it, than, than they used to um, originally by typing it into a system. Almost all radiology reports now are created as a product of, of um, NLP-backed dictation. And yet, it hasn't made it widely in, into the rest of the NHS. And, and we're talking about technology that is on every single smartphone. So it's in the pocket of just about every doc and nurse in the country. Um, what, what I'm after is the secure means by which the device has no idea what words are going in and out of it. Necessary, so we're not giving away patient confidentiality completely reasonably. But can then be squirted into the clinical record as as, as you know, lumps of text. The second order, which was shown to me um, a while ago, is the, is the second part of natural language processing of understanding what a block of text means. Um, so I saw this uh, over a decade ago, the ability to create a great screed of, of clinical record free text by dictation. And the device then goes, I think what you're meaning, and structures it and codes it and puts out those structured codes and says, do these fit, which would include, if we're doing an operative note, would in, include uh, diagnosis, procedures, laterality, left, right, um, both, uh, negation. There was no evidence of cancer, and you don't want to just pick up the word cancer for coding. You want to, um, the, 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 the whole lot, I mean, really nicely. I've seen it again. I was in, in, in Shanghai at the World AI Fora, um, where I saw beautiful examples that could take huge pages of handwritten text and fire them through. So the first piece is trying to interpret uh, the, the script and the, um, to convert it into, into um, something that's then machine readable. And then the second piece is machine reading it and pulling out the meaning and, and structuring it as code. If we get that right, we can start uh, structuring records and searching records much more usefully than we can. Um, Google do this routinely for, 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 for pages of text. Now, it is harder in medicine, I get that. But if I want to look at someone's past blood results, unless they've been formally coded, it's really difficult. And yet, if you or I read their notes, read their clinic letters, so it doesn't matter whether it's, a, it's handwritten text in a big bundle of paper or whether it's a, 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 you know, a letter stored in, in any commercial um, document storage system, you and I will spot a blood pressure almost instantly. Yeah, three digits, dash, two digits, usually. 
um, I get I get excited if it's two over two or three over three. Anything else doesn't matter to me. But the, the that's a joke. But the um, I, I'm surprised we haven't adopted technology that allows that to be to be absolutely routine. Second order, we've seen um, uh, machine learning now working well at image interpretation is one of the ones given as the most obvious example. Uh, routine image interpretation. We need to be quite caveated here. This is not randomly the machines can read every X-ray better than humans. Uh, but you give them a series of pretty defined parameters and they're very good at it. Uh, so lesion follow-up, where we've got a known nodule on a CT scan, has it got bigger? And doing that volume calculation, the machine will do it better than the human and much, much, much faster. For retinal scans, if you're going to take retinal scans, huge volumes of retinal scans now being done, um, both on the high street and in specialist clinics. And one wants to understand, uh, are they normal or is there anything that uh, that somebody should pay attention to. And you can do that screen really quickly with AI. In fact, the AI is not bad at spotting what it is that the human will do, but I suggest you double read that. What you can do is clear the normals, reduce the backlog, make it much easier to, to undertake the task. And so I'm I'm surprised we haven't done those. And then the the third um, is, is almost boring, um, which is the, the, the mass sharing of the already existing information and, and, and data. So we, we still hold as our gold standard, uh, rightly evidence-based medicine. Um, I need to see the control trial between whatever it is I'm, I'm interested in and the best uh, alternative to see whether it's better. And the real world of pres- particularly prescribing, I'm, I'm going for medicines, but it would apply to anything, um, isn't as, as straightforward as that. The patients aren't at the, necessarily the same age as the group who volunteered for the trial. They're on polypharmacy. They are often not completely compliant with their medications. Is this going to work in the real world? Well, we hold that data. Okay, we, 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 We've got that um, uh, 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 volume now. So if I want to know for my 88-year-old father... Uh, whether it's it's worth his taking a stat in with the side effects he's getting from it. I want to know the the if the, the benefit to 88-year-olds with a degree of chronic renal failure of a stat in over the next 10, 10 years. The NHS holds that data. Um, and so I'm I'm surprised that we aren't making better routine use of huge volumes of information we hold. Uh, we will. And we are getting better at it over time. But 12, 14 years ago, Tesco's was using um, machine learning to look at the queues in its supermarkets in order to redesign their checkouts and in order to determine their staffing rotors in order to better reflect the, the, uh, the numbers passing through. Um, and they got good at it because if they're accused of the checkouts, people don't use that supermarket, they go to another one. The NHS occasionally behaves like Mondays are a surprise um, on a sort of weekly weekly basis. Now, you know, the best organisations are brilliant at their prediction of bed demand, but others still treat each bed request as, as if this is a, a quest for the Holy Grail rather than a completely predictable I- I- event that a pretty modest level of routine retail demand prediction would be accurate to, to as near as makes no difference. Earlier, you gave the example of Boston and Hong Kong. 
And yes. I'm curious from just your personal opinion, are there any other countries or cities in the world that are doing interesting things that you think the NHS could learn from? Well, uh, I, I'm not going to give you any examples that, that, that aren't freely available, I'm afraid. But, but um, yes, there, there, there are lots doing, doing fun things. Um, Estonia, um, always quoted as the, as the most digital nation. Um, yeah, they're not, they're not that big. Um, uh, well, I can't remember, 3.7 million or, or whatever it may be. But they, they have fully digitally coordinated records for all public services. And there is something about how the world would look if you knew that all records were always going to be available. Um, and the difference it would make to how we structure records, how we structure handovers, how citizens approach new points of care, if everybody knew always that the records were always going to be uh, available. And they, they, they discussed that uh, um, uh, very, very well. Um, who else would I, or would I particularly rate? Um, Australia's uh, trying to do great things with, with uh, remote telehealth, but they've always been uh, pretty good at it because of, because of the geography. Uh, they're spending my e-health card at the moment trying to share me medications uh, and, and uh, other elements. The Dutch have adopted a completely different approach from the public-private par partnership that we were discussing. Uh, so the public's a very, very thin layer on top of a, a, a by and large privately provided uh, time system. Um, yeah, I, I spend my life talking to to other countries here, and it's everybody struggles in different ways with similar things. Interoperability is universally, internationally challenging, and um, no one's got it sussed. But I, we, we have um, uh, the Global Digital Health Partnership as a, a system set up. I think we've got about 60 nations on board now looking at uh, interoperability amongst, amongst other challenges to say, how do we help each other with international standards that mean we're, we're not individually wasting effort trying to create um, uh, standards. So uh, SNOMED CT as the underpinning uh, coding standard, uh, FIRE probably as, a, as the underpinning messaging standard, um, to HL7 as, as, as the structuring standard. Um, these are all good. They are good. Um, I suspect within not terribly long, they will be a somewhat redundant technology because if, if the AI gets better in the way we were discussing earlier, you won't need to be as structured to still be fully machine readable. And, and I, don't, I don't know whether I'm, I'm being overly optimistic there, but there's a bit of me that just wonders if we're spending a long time describing the right standards for video between you know, VHS and Betamax and, and no one's quite, no one's spotted discs and they sure as hell haven't spotted uh, live streaming and that perhaps we're, we're, we're targeting the wrong problem. But nobody's got that answer yet. I keep watching. I'm promised a lot. Blockchain, blockchain effect. I saw that you spent some time at Oxford Business School and I'm very curious about that. So what did you take from that? What, what have you learned from that that you apply today? Yes, I, I did the um, major, project, major Project Leadership Academy uh, at Science Business School. Uh, over uh, eighteen months, two years, um, it was it was fascinating. There are a number of bits that I took that that I, I've used. Um, as, as, as so, it was applied to all projects. Uh, so we had an air vice marshal 
on 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 my group who was extremely funny uh, uh, about an aircraft type that shall have to remain nameless. Um, and the chat responsible for the British nuclear submarine fleets and, and all sorts of other so HS2 and, and, and so on. Really, really interesting course. Um, but the Black Swans, as they're called, this is the project which, as the organisation tries to pursue it, consumes all the resources, all the money, and then goes desperately wrong. They were all digital. Um, and indeed, the National Programme for IT was used as the sort of the par excellence example, uh, which so I became the butt of everybody's jokes, but but that was fine um, in that conversation. And it was it was interesting with with a group of such interesting people at the top of their game discussing why projects like that not just go wrong. That's that's relatively easily understood but how they're allowed to keep going wrong into the point where they're now consuming huge amounts of resources and people have quite clearly lost their grip. And one of the things that struck me in, in that conversation is um, if I took um, a, a finance spreadsheet for ten, tens of millions on, on something hideously complicated, re, you know, reorganising all, all image processing for an, a large organisation, whatever it may be, and I took that to the board, whether it's the board of the CCG or the board of the acute hospital or whatever, they would understand that spreadsheet and one could walk them through it. They would go, all right, okay, but discuss the benefits case, discuss the ratios, what's the capital, what's the revenue, whatever it may be. Okay, yes, no, blah, blah, blah. If I took a clinical safety case, so-and-so died because they were given the wrong you know, a medication to which they're allergic because nobody put the wristband on and that because stores they couldn't find the risk whatever it may be everyone would be able to read it through they'd be able to understand the root cause analysis they'd be able to understand uh, what we're proposing to do uh, differently you take an it case to the board in in many organizations you'll have that same conversation but in some you really won't they'll all turn and they'll look at the the, the, the cio or ccio and, and and hope they're competent and that, that they can answer it there isn't yet the same innate understanding that digital is a core part of how we transact business. If you go to a, a large uh, retailer these days um, and the board doesn't understand digital, they're going to go bust. Um, it, it, it is now the world in which they work. It needs to become the world in which we work and therefore in close to real time, we can understand what our data is telling us. So we've got the GERFT program in the NHS helping organisations understand their quality data on what to do uh, uh, to, to improve that. And that's really interesting to, to, to see. But it becomes meaningful when you're looking at this month or last month's data, not six months ago or a year ago's data. Um, and in some of the, the best organisations I've come across, uh, there's one that um, uh, a surgical unit that employed a research reg to look at their coding data to help every junior doctor do their audits, to help their national coding and to help them produce brilliant research. Um, uh, talking to her and, and she said, yeah, and then the doctors change over at the beginning of, uh, of August. And she said, yeah, and I will spot. She's like the matrix watching the screen in front of her. Ah, you, Ward 7, you're, you're doing it all wrong. And she'd be, she'd be bleeping them at once going, no, no, you've, you've completely misunderstood how to do this. Well, that approach to data quality is just 
fabulous and, uh, and revolutionary. And we need to get to a point in which this is this is widely understood. So I, I was there at Sai Business School listening to, to these really interesting, the, 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 the way to run something well is to understand in, in really interesting detail where its risks are, not as an abstract risk register, but in a practical application of reality. And the number of digital projects that have gone wrong because the top three things on their risk register came true um, is, is ludicrous. The other bit I took, uh, took from it just for, for, for one moment, um, which lots of people have done, is a bit about personality types um, and leadership styles. Um, and uh, for me, there, there were two aspects that one, um, how each style of leadership goes wrong when carried into caricature. Uh, so the person who loves order and structure and is methodical becomes very static if they, if they go too far. And the person who loves dynamism and drive just becomes sort of angry and ranty if, if, if they go on and so on. And how this, this, uh, in, uh, this idea of the complete leader is a perfect blend of all types. It, it, no, no, none of us are. All right, it's, it's simply not true. How do you create a team that, that reflects all of those styles? How do you empower them as individuals? I've overused used empower, but how, how do you work with them as individuals uh, to make sure all of, of our collective knowledge is fed into uh, how to deliver? And that's both the clinical knowledge, the digital knowledge, the transformation skills. Um, and where you can do that, you stand an infinitely better chance of, of creating something truly useful uh, to the service rather than building something outline and then dropping it over the fence and wondering why nobody wants to pick it up and use it. Throughout your career, have there been any habits or ways you've approached things that you think have helped you along the way? Um, I think an awful lot that haven't, but um, my, my inbox is a, is a, is a howling disaster. It's <laughs> uh, also much mirth to others. Um, there's a bit about... Um, people holding themselves back. Um, and, and I'd suggest don't. Um, in that, a good idea is a good idea. And people tend to be quite quite reticent or the first person they discuss it with squashes it. Um, I was advised pretty, pretty seriously as a, as a junior doc by more than one consultant that my failure to only pursue the, the specialty training in hand and the next exam was was a sign that I was completely hopeless, uh, and that this this ridiculous interest in in other things um, was was a flash in the pan and should be should be stopped. Um, and I'm I'm glad I didn't listen to them as as much as I, uh, I might have done. But it was not easy, and it was not made easy. Um, now I've got. I'm aware of a very small number of, of training program directors who recognise that it may be okay to let someone train part-time to pursue an interest in, in digital and technology with the other aspects of their time. Um, and yet we desperately need in the health service clinical informaticians. We need to create a, a, a roadmap from them. So if you're listening to this and this is a real interest for you, it's creating a slightly dogged personality that's going to get through some of this. Um, while we as a profession catch up with the need to, to uh, better 
create a, so I'm, I'm committed to creating a career path, but until that's transparently obvious to others, you, you kind of got to push through a bit. And it is hard. Um, and, and, and not giving up on that, I, I, I think, would be, would be useful. Um, other habits, I, I, I don't know, I, I write endless to-do lists. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm good at it. I find myself adding things to the bottom of to-do lists in order to cross them out so there's something on the list that's been done. Um, that's not a good habit. It's a dreadful habit, but it cheers me up. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not going to give you any advice that others haven't given a, 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 um, a, a hundred times. Um, before around looking after yourself and creating uh, sufficient time um, away from work. Medicine can be all-consuming. Uh, IT can be all-consuming. Getting some pretty, pretty, um, gosh, I'm having nominal aphasia, which is very bad. Um, uh, uh, an honest, neutral opinion to you of whether the idea is a good one, the career idea is a good one, that's not just your current boss. But who do you, who do you trust to give you uh, some of that advice and guidance. I, I came across a couple of junior dogs who, who mortgaged their houses to create an app. Um, and it was a perfectly valid idea. Let me be quite clear about that. But it was launching into a super competitive field and I could I could name eight others. Always. I was thinking, hang on, you, you've, you've mortgaged your house for this? Christ, it, it, it's nowhere near ready. And it's your first... Your first app's going to fail. That's the way it works. Your second will maybe right. Your third one may be genius, and, and you know, with a bit of luck, your 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 fourth one's a whale and turns makes you a billionaire, and that's all marvelous. I should be bloody jealous. Um, but it isn't the first one. You know, the, and and uh, I so I think independent sources of really good digital careers, di- clinical digital careers advice for dogs, very very hard to come. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.